I miss the birds. Even the 10 years that we've been here, we have about half the birds that we had initially, and that saddens me. I miss the flavor of wheat. I remember bread tasting really good. I am totally dismayed with the monoculture that we don't have varieties of of foodstuffs that we once had. I guess in the way I'm shielded a little bit because Susie is very conscientious as you to keep things that way, but it's very discouraging. Growing up, especially on the farm, when we lived on the farm, we watched the geese fly away and we watched them come back. Even in Nebraska, when we lived there, we lived there from what, 95 to 2005. I saw the places where the geese used to settle. You know, I had a book at that time, Environmental Issues, well, still around. And I talk about the value of wetlands uh, and how it stops flooding and and it breeds, has spaces for animals. We loved looking at the red-winged blackbirds in the spring. We loved seeing some swans land on the reservoir. We grew up with that, listening very carefully, catching grasshoppers, uh, being plagued by grasshoppers. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I miss that. Hi, this is Josh, and this is The Joshua Spodek Show, formerly Leadership in the Environment. I still bring you leaders in the area of the environment in the form of leaders and role models. Everyone treats stewardship like a burden or a chore, deprivation, sacrifice. So did I until I actually tried it seriously. It is a joy. Everything about it. We're here to share that joy. Meet amazing world-renowned people from all parts of life. Hear about them, what the environment means to them, and hear most of them find something meaningful to act on and then to share their experience. Why? Because stewardship and acting to help others for something greater than all of us creates about the greatest feeling humans can get, as does fresh air, clear water, delicious food, and clean land. That's what we're bringing you. Ladies and gentlemen, I bring you a conversation with my mom. We sat down intending to talk for about an hour. As you can see, it's a bit longer than that. I've been thinking about recording with my parents for a while, mainly because environmental action is personal. It affects all of your behavior and therefore the relationships with people around you. And people keep asking me, what motivates me? And I wanted to answer beyond just what I could tell them because my answers didn't seem to get enough. Lots of people talk and they ask about the challenges of changing others or even just changing themselves within close relationships. Well, I'm pretty close with my mom and I've known her my whole life. So you'll get to hear more of my background, the environmental and otherwise. You'll hear a bit of dirty laundry. I don't think really seriously dirty laundry, but the part that I think both my mom and I, that we both think, or at least hope that you'll enjoy, is what I see as towards the end, we start talking past each other. And I think we both think it's kind of funny that we're not understanding each other or something's not quite getting across. I think that happens all the time. I guess it's easier for me to do, have these conversations with people who I don't know that well, because all sorts of stuff comes up. You'll get to hear. For context, what precipitated doing this episode now is that because of the coronavirus, I've been living here at my mom's house outside the city following the advice to distance for about a month. And this is the first time we've spent this long in such close proximity since the 80s. So you get to hear two people who've been living, I mean, my stepfather's here too, and we've been living in very close quarters for a month. You'll get to hear some of what we see about each other. I think it'll be kind of fun towards the end. And you'll get to hear a lot about my childhood growing up and where my mom came from. So here's my mom. 
Welcome to the Leadership in the Environment podcast. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with my mom, Marie Spodek. How are you doing? I am doing great. <laughs> what a great opportunity. <laughs> so I've been preparing for this conversation for 48 years. <laughs> I was thinking, like, do I have to research you? And uh, we're sitting at the, at the dining room table where, I guess last Thanksgiving we didn't have, but this is, we've had a bunch of Thanksgiving dinners here. There was on the table a minute ago a COVID mask that you had sewn. Right. And I just, it was kind of giving context. There's over on the wall back there, a, a puppet from just, India. No, it's not from India. Some Bali, Bali, maybe. Bali. It makes me think of India, which is where my older sister was born. And I spent a year of my childhood there. Just giving some context. And I asked you, what was it, a few days ago to be a guest on the podcast. You read my blog a bunch, but I don't think you've listened to much of the podcast. So this is new for you. Do you have any expectations? Or I have no expectations at all. Uh, part of the reason why I wanted, you know, my, my general strategy is that I want to get very well-known people. And you're very well-known to me, but you're not well-known. Like, like, you know, I was talking about Serena and, and Oprah and Bruce and people like that. But I think also a lot of people talk to me, and I have this experience as well. They'll say, I want to change this thing about me, but my husband, my wife, my kids, my boss, someone close to me, it becomes an issue. For the past month now, I've been living up here outside of Manhattan because of COVID-19. We've not spent this much time together since the 80s. At least, yeah. And environmental things come up. And it's kind of different with family than with not family, right? Especially when you're living with them. Yeah. Uh, yeah, because normally I'd be up here for a weekend or something, and, and it wouldn't be such a big, be like, oh, yeah. What are your thoughts on my doing the podcast, my blogging and, and talking about the environment? Is, is that becoming a big issue? That wasn't always an issue for me, or was it? I, maybe you remember more than I do. Well, there's a couple of things. One is I come from an industry, actually, where there are hundreds, if not a couple of thousand, who would know my name. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, it's just one of those industries, real estate education, that isn't on the radar for a lot of people. The second thing about the environment, I'm wondering how far back we could go, and I'm, I'm thinking, I wasn't prepared for that. I, I'll have to think about that. I don't know that we spent a lot of time thinking about that back in the 70s and the 80s. Although, living in India, you know, I'll mention that between 65 and 75, I lived three full years in India out of 10. And one of the things in India is that we recycled and reused. We couldn't go and get oil, cooking oil, unless we had a little glass bottle to take with us. And, of course, right now everybody's been laughing about the TP shortage. And in India, we all learn how to use our left hand in water. And for the rest of our lives, few of us actually give something to someone with our left hand mm -hmm. because it's been indelibly imprinted in our minds. So I think one of the saddest things was when I went back in the late 70s, early 80s, and found that India no longer, they had bottled oil. You didn't bring your own bottle in. They had stopped recycling a lot of things. And we were out in the desert, Bill and I, my husband and I, and we just saw toilet paper everywhere. In the desert, just in lying the on the ground. Desert. Like they wouldn't flush it, they would just... Well, of course it was tourists out there. And the, I don't know what the Indians did. The people who were leading our caravans in circles in the Rajasthan desert. But certainly the foreigners 
all had toilet paper that they just dropped on the ground. And that was disconcerting. Speaking of India, do you remember, I remember in India, swarms of kids swarming me because when I was a little kid, I had really super blonde hair and they wanted to touch it. They did. Do you remember that? I do. Can you help refresh my memory? I I should have asked, because I remember being scared. Well, anywhere you went where there were people of color. So the same thing happened to you on Rockland Street. When I, when I renovated that old abandoned house and you kids were down there, especially the girls, the teenage girls wanted to touch you because you were so fair-skinned. And in India, well, of course, in India, just being a foreigner made a difference. Back then. Back then, yeah. not so much now. And it wasn't, I mean, yes, it was your hair, but it was also there weren't that many foreign kids there. So the fact that you and Susie were there made, you know, people congregated all the time. They did it with adults, but they also did it for the children. So going back to environmental things, I I remember the way I usually say it is that when I was a kid growing up, I would turn off the light when I wasn't in the room. I would generally not use the air conditioner more than necessary. Actually, food has become a really big deal for me. And growing up with a co-op, you and Bill and dad were all involved early on with getting Was it just saving money or was it also getting, I mean, organic wasn't as big a deal at the time, I don't think. I mean, the co-op in Philadelphia is a big deal. Like that was a big part of my childhood. Well, because in Northwest Philadelphia, at one point there were six co-ops and from lower Germantown all the way up north, past even Weaver's Way. And ultimately, I mean, there was a sense we were coming out of hippiedom and People were going back to nature, and they wanted to do things for themselves. I think part of it was saving money. That was definitely part of it. But also a sense that we had more control over the food that we got. It taught us a lot of things. That food co-op, we placed an order, and it was bagged forth. When we came, we picked it up, and we had one week to eat what we had ordered. And so on Wednesday, we ate whatever was in the refrigerator so that Thursday we would have room for more coming in. And it really focused us on eating vegetables because that's what we were getting from the food co-op. Oh, also, I don't know when I learned from you, you growing up on a farm then in the town in South Dakota, you would talk about something like you'd have a pound of meat for six people for a week and your dad would eat half. Everything else was split. Not quite. And it wasn't for a week. So we would raise the food that we ate. So we raised a calf to eat. We raised a cow to eat. We raised chickens. Mother would place her order, and 200 chicks would come to the post office. We would drive to town, get day old chicks, and bring them home. We had them for six weeks. And then at the end of six weeks, we started preparing them for the winter. So we killed 20 a day. We took the feathers off. We gutted them. I learned a lot of biology then because you learn organs when you're gutting them. And we would freeze the chicken for, they were called six weeks, broilers, spring fryers. And we'd put them in the freezer until the winter. We planted a whole bunch of potatoes because we had to have potatoes to get us through the winter. We had laying hens that my sister gathered eggs every day. 
And fortunately, we had enough laying hens that we could take a carton of eggs to town. Eventually, the truck came and picked them up. But essentially, what we sold the eggs for is what we ate on. That was what we could buy in the store. So either we grew it and processed it, or we had to buy it in the store. And what we bought in the store depended on how many eggs we could sell. How did that filter into how you raised us? Or I haven't really thought about this. I mean, I just kind of heard these stories. I didn't live on a farm. I mean, I grew up, the supermarket would be, you just go and get stuff off the shelf. And I didn't think much about it. Although I've often talked about how when we were on Rockland Street and the houses, every other house, there'd be welfare stuff and there'd be all the welfare peanut butter, which was so sweet. And we had the, ours was the old dominions. So it was only peanuts and maybe salt. <laughs> and I was just eat by the spoonful because it tasted so good. But yeah, we grew up, there wasn't sugar cereal allowed in the house, except, well, this wasn't in the house, but when we would go camping, there'd be sugar cereals, I guess, because we were outdoors all the time. What well, was a treat? A treat. Now I, I view that as like a punishment. <laughs> if I got candy, that would be like, oh, what did I do to deserve this? Well, there were little things that were special, you know, that you just keep thinking about. Whatever you grow up with is special. Those years on the farm were very hardship years. So when we moved to town and dad had a salary, then that eased the money situation a little bit. But I was thinking about this recently that it was good that I was able to get a job because from the time I was a freshman, I paid for any of my school supplies or any school trips or anything. I think back right now, I was one of the first people to get contact lenses. The hard one. The hard contact lenses, which I loved and wore them for a long time until they told me I couldn't anymore. But I paid for those contact lenses, and it's in my mind. They cost $90. And I was getting $0.25 cents an hour babysitting and $0.35 cents an hour working in the dry goods store. Think of, I mean, that's, that's astonishing to me. And it was very, very special. I love those contact lenses. And how did that translate to us? I mean, for me, how I was raised was how I was raised. It, everything was normal to me. Did you raise us special or different than the average American? If the, I don't know. I think it translated and to this day, which all of you in the family know, it's really hard for me to spend money in, on a lot of things. So I second-guess Bill when he goes shopping. I couldn't go in and buy clothes. I had to make them. If I didn't make them, I could not go to the store and buy clothes. I simply could not. I picked up my mother's issues from the depression, plus the fact that there wasn't a lot of money. And I think that wasn't a good thing. Uh, I think that I was too far overboard on that. I think it would have been good to have some moderation. Yeah, I remember it was late August meant going to the Reading, Pennsylvania, I think. Sometimes. They, and Marshall's. Marshall's. Yeah, it was getting like the, the remainders stuff or the well, factory retail factory. factory rejects. But here's the thing. I actually liked that process because I took you kids generally one at a time. And I don't remember going to Reading as much as maybe that's where the store was. But I remember walking through the store, say with you, and 
I could easily let you pick out whatever you wanted to pick out. Then we would go to the dressing room and you would go into the dressing room and reject anything that didn't fit. And we put that on the shelf and then we'd come out with, and I had the calculator and each one of you kids had a certain amount of money that you could spend. And so we would stand there with the calculator. And for you in particular, that made a lot of sense. It was adding and subtracting. And the responsibility was to you to decide what it was that you were going to buy based on the money that was available. So you learned, your siblings learned very quickly what that meant. Now, I'm going to share something funny. (laughs) And that's the time when you absolutely wanted a pair of designer jeans. And we worked it out. It was within the budget. The problem was that you grew like four inches in the next six weeks, and they were useless. And so I think that was one of the turning points in your life when you decided, oh, heck, I better not do designer jeans again because I might grow out of them very quickly. It's funny. I'm, I happen to be wearing designer jeans. Now, I think I told you about this was at um, Housing Works Fifth Store and they were a 40 bucks. And I, and I knew this would be the case because the, the tags were still on them when I got home. And they only sold them, I think, at Barney's in New York. And they were like 250 bucks. And so think about environmental things for me earlier, because people always ask me, where did this come from? To me, there was some stuff early on, but not much. I mean, I remember the crying Indian PSAs with the, the, the single tear coming down when he sees the, the garbage but mostly I feel like I had these experiences in the past decade or so where I really actively changed things. But there were things like Mrs. Fingerhood that all three of the kids went through the same teacher. I think for me, it was fourth grade or fifth grade, fifth grade, fifth grade. And she assigned us to go, or we went to Cape May in, uh, like a park in New Jersey. And she was really into bird watching. She was into bird watching. We all got into bird watching. Yeah. Bill too. And there was a movie where they showed them like clear cutting, a, not clear cutting, like burning down the field in order to, I don't know, build a shopping mall or something. And we would see the chicks dying and being burned alive. I feel like that was pretty formative. There was something there that stuck with us all for a long time and stuck with the, in the family. Mm. I feel like that was one of the bigger things. I, I don't remember if there was a whole lot of else. Mm, it's an interesting thought. On, on one lane, I remember we always wanted to have the air conditioning on in the back room, but you guys, there were like limits on how much we could put the air conditioning on because it was expensive, I guess. Right. So that didn't teach me environmental. I was like, I just wanted a cold. Well, that back room is interesting because... So this is a TV room. It was the TV room. And it wasn't possible to link it into the heating system in the house. So there was a propane, I think it was gas propane. I'm not sure. It was not kerosene. And the thing is, the pipes would rattle at a certain point. So to watch TV, you would have to hit the pipe with a hammer <laughs> to shut it off, then go and sit and watch. And at the first commercial, you might go back and hit it again so that you could watch a show. But it was so burdensome to do this that you really didn't watch much TV. And, you know, the TV was purchased over my big objections. I did not want a color TV. It was a big deal when we finally got a color TV. Now, the air conditioning back there, I don't remember that as much as the heating situation was. That might have been the only room in the house that had an air conditioner. I think think that's why we all go back there. And where you would sleep. Yeah. Everybody would sleep back there. Yeah. Yeah. 
Well, that was a good way of doing things, having one air conditioner for six people. And then there's a drum set when Steve was there. (laughs) And um, Steve was our refugee from Vietnam. A foster child, I guess. Yeah. And you said something that I wanted to get back to. Oh, yeah, the TV. We never had cable. I don't think we had cable ever growing up until you moved to South Carolina. Yeah, probably. Yeah, I remember because we'd love watching MTV. Right. Because that was so... As parents, we were afraid of it because it was sexy and raw and might get our kids in the wrong direction if we only knew. Because now, I mean, that's nothing. So most people describe me as more environmental than most people. And people, part of what I I wanted to get out, like, so that people can understand where I'm coming from, because people keep asking where it's coming from. So maybe something come up, but you've seen me change I'm definitely more environmental now than before. I'm not sure if that's the right word. Right. What did it look like from your perspective? Well, I think, Josh, that all of us moved in that direction. You moved more rapidly and deeper into complete environmental issues. But I think each one of us in the family is careful because, you know, when Sarah was in Morocco in the Peace Corps, you know, she had only a few things. And I know that she used to hide the tuna cans and take them out, and especially because she didn't want people to realize how much more she had. Just a can of tuna was something more. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there's that saying, make do or do without. So there was never excessive use of anything. So I think in the last few years, you have made it a passion a little bit more. But, you know, I watch your sister Susie. She composts. She works with the green market. Well, you all became vegetarians about the same time. I believe I became vegetarian like 10 years earlier. Then Susie? I remember reading Diet for a Small Planet at dad's house. So that would be high school. Well, by the time Susie went to Japan, she was a committed vegetarian. That was when I was in high school too. Yeah. Okay. So... Definitely. And at different times, well, my husband, Bill, has never become, well, and that's not true. As we talked he about did the other day. Yeah. Become, you did with him? It was we did. No, oh, okay. Yeah. He became a vegetarian after Vipassana, the, his first sit mm-hmm. with Goenkaji. We sat, we did the 10 days in Australia, and he never said anything to me, but he stopped eating anything with a face for the next five, six, seven years. And at that point, when he decided to start eating meat, I said, we will only eat meat where we know where it's come from. So we found a a rancher, a cattleman, six miles from our home. And we knew the cow that was grazing and what it was eating. And when it was slaughtered, it was done by a small town butcher that kept that business alive in the small town. So we've always been careful that way. And Bill, of course, you know, is a gardener. So anytime he could, he grew vegetables. And, you know, he became a big person to can. He canned a lot of vegetables in Nebraska. So we had a freezer and we either froze the produce and ate it through the winter or he canned it. The thing I've been thinking about what we eat. And I think that each one of us 
that's one part of the environment that we want to think about. I think each person, each of us has a responsibility to at least choose one thing that they can be passionate about and work at. Not everybody is going to stop eating meat. I think factory farming is really bad. I've seen it out in the Midwest. It's not the symbiotic relationship that I grew up with on the farm where we were friends with what we ate and we fed them. And to me, it was just part of the natural order. But now it's not. And it really hit me when in Nebraska, when we were living there and we went to visit someone and they took us to a farm that was raising pigs. And we had to be in surgical scrubs to go into the barn. They were so nervous about either us picking up something or we bringing something into those hogs. And something being a virus. Virus, mm-hmm. yeah. And I was like, no, this isn't the way I grew up. So my passion hasn't gone in the direction that your two passions have gone. Uh, I see not flying as one of your passions and uh, becoming a vegan. Well, beyond vegan, I don't know. Does it have a name for nothing processed? Some people would say whole food, plant-based. For me, it's avoiding doof. I do. <laughs> and your listeners know what doof is, I take it. If they don't look up doof on my podcast, and they'll see an episode. I just did an episode on it, two episodes on it. All right. So I, for my business, I ended up doing a lot of flying, as did you, for a while when you were in business. Mm-hmm. And it never was. I realized I always got sick. I, we had to allow an extra day to go there because we couldn't rely on my getting there on time. I had to allow at least three or four days to get well when I came home. It wasn't an ideal situation. So I was cutting back on that and gratefully. The passion that I've come up with is the more I learn about fabrics and garments, the more horrified I am. You know I love to sew. I grew up, we took garments that we bought at the lowest of the thrift stores and cut them up, and those were our clothes. Mother made our clothes, and I learned how to sew when I was 10, 11, was making my own clothes. The thing is, we were recycling cotton and wool, and today those garments are hard to find, And I feel really bad for the primarily women in Bangladesh who are, you know, sewing things and the conditions that they're in. And now with this coronavirus thing, they've shut that down. But we've also been using fibers and fabrics that are really, really bad for the environment. Right now, I'm really big on microfibers, which apparently we're even breathing right now. Forget in the water. It, I, I thought you were going to say I'm big on something that you'd like to use, but I think you're saying it's something you avoid. Something I want issue. to avoid, yeah. And that's when I started about five or six years ago, buying only a couple of things new, uh, some personal garments under, you know, underneath my clothes. But everything else is recycled. It's somebody else. And as you mentioned, I have two pair of jeans that were $250 jeans at Bloomingdale's. And I didn't know that I paid the most I've ever paid was $30. But I took the label from the inside and put them on the outside. outside. (laughs) So that 
I, I could go on record as having one of those genes. One of them is not anything special, but there is a pair of genes that several of my friends have said, when you buy that pair of genes, you will love them. And it's true. I, somehow or another, it was, there was value in that. But I got them at a thrift store. In the room next to this one is the sewing room. And did you start with a sewing machine with a treadle that you operated with your foot, like manually, or is it electronic even then? No, it was not electronic, but mother had a sewing machine that you plugged in. So I don't think we had a treadle machine. We had an electric machine. Well, and speaking of food, you said that your mom had a pressure cooker, but we never had one because I think you said they blew up. Yeah. So it skipped a generation. It skipped a generation. So you picked up the pressure cooker, but we're starting to use it now. And I believe it's in use as we speak. Did you put something in? Build it. Uh-huh. The chili, the beans for the chili. Ah, okay. And the big thing that I usually talk about first, my biggest shift was when I tried to go for a week without buying packaged food. That came from staying at Susie's place when my apartment was being worked on and seeing her cooking almost from scratch, almost every meal. And that led me to an experiment before that, which wasn't environmental, was to see if I could go without foods where fiber had been removed, my working definition for processed. And that was a big success because I didn't feel like I was eating differently, but I started getting definition on my abs. And I was like, oh, that worked. I like that. I mentioned this because that brought me back to you cooked a lot from scratch. and Oh, yeah, totally. Until we moved to South Carolina. Do you recall that we had a rule that every night a different kid cooked? Yeah, we'd go to school in the morning. And when we came home, there's a note saying which kid and the recipe. And so I'd come home and it, if, if it was me, it would say, like, Josh, it's your turn to do this. Yeah. And Bill wrote, would write detailed notes. Actually, we let you choose what you wanted to do. So you could choose different foods, or things to do, because it was really important that we sit down together and have a meal. And the instructions were detailed. Uh, I found one recently on how to make granola in the microwave. And that was fun. So we did that. I wonder when we had the Vietnamese refugee boy, did he cook? I don't remember. We might not have been cooking at that point that way, but we also cooked from scratch. We did not have packaged food. You're right. And it wasn't until South Carolina. And I wonder why it changed then. Well, we did. I mean, we had boxed cereals, we had yogurts, uh, we bought meat. So that was packaged. I mean, the freezer was pretty full of stuff, but I certainly remember when tomatoes and zucchinis came in season because then there'd be a lot of tomatoes and zucchinis in our food. Yeah. I don't think we cooked like totally from scratch, but more than most people do. Could be. I, yeah. That I couldn't say because I wasn't in other houses. So spending time at Susie's and she was doing the farmer's markets then less than now, but you know, doing it a lot and cooking for three kids and a husband plus me. And she had been composting for a while and suggesting that I do it, but I didn't really know what that meant. I didn't really know how to do it. So seeing it in action the cooking led me to start cooking more. And that opened up the door for me to give myself the challenge to try to avoid packaged food. And I saw her doing it. I, but then it reminded me that I saw you doing it a lot growing up too. So, so she didn't start cooking pretty much until she got to the house. Was it the house or the son or the... Well, one of the things when you're a stay-at-home mom is that you end up cooking. You don't order out. I mean, so she really became an accomplished cook. And that's just one of the, I became a cook when I was a stay-at-home mom, when I'd cooked before. I remember when I had my first job in Minneapolis, St. Paul, 
And my roommate and I, I said, we want to say thank you to your relatives who have hosted us so many times. So let's have a dinner party. I love dinner parties even then. And I found a recipe for chicken marengo. And I knew from 4-H and growing up that you follow a recipe. It's like a chemistry lab and you have something good. And her family was utterly amazed that I could cook. Not that I could cook, cook, but I could follow a recipe and I served a lovely dinner for them. It wasn't based it was taking us all out of Minneapolis, Minnesota. Chicken Marengo, I think, was a French dish that was created to impress Napoleon. So it, it, we tried that. Your father tried that. He tried to, and he learned how to cook, too. I remember more, <laughs> less well, I mean, it's more packaged stuff. I mean, I also remember you, your tuna casserole. But that, was, that would be tuna from a can, plus the noodles would come from a box. And you put... Potato chips on top. I think that was like the treat. That was really a treat, wasn't it? <laughs> so it was a mix then. So do you remember when Bill, as he always did the food shopping, he didn't mind going to get food. And almost always Susie went with him. But when he came back, whether he went alone or any of us, when we went shopping, all of you kids would tear out of the house and bring the groceries in and put them away, which impressed so many visitors. Huh. But the reason why is because you would all find your favorite kind of yogurt or your yeah. favorite food and hide it oh, from yeah, everybody yeah. else. Yeah, I remember because we all had our flavors that we liked. Of the yogurt. Yeah, and that was too much for him. Yes. He was just, look, what you get is what you get. and You had to grab it if yeah. you could see it. Well, that, I'm thinking about that now because of like the shopping now. So now there's frictions of, of, around food and, and, and waste. How's that worked out? Like, okay, I asked how your observation of my change over the past several years. How how long would you say? I I kind of lose track because it's just, I'm just living. You became so serious about this. I think it was from living at Susie's house, and every year after that, you've become more strict. So you 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 view it as strict. Yeah. How does it look to you? From I mean, besides what you see, like how does it feel or what? It, well. It means that we can't share a lot of meals together. Now, since you've been up here, and and if you think back four weeks ago, there was a little, we had to figure out how, A, we would cook in the same kitchen with divergent menus. And then would we sit together? Would you be upset with us for eating meat? eating something, uh, pasta from the package, because that pasta is really useless because it's GF pasta. Uh, Gluten-free for Bill. Bill yeah, can't eat it. he's yeah. wheat sensitive. And and you've brought us back and me back to, I don't know what you call cabbage and things like that. I grew up with those because, A, you could we could grow them. They were always cheap. And we ate them all through the winter. But they're also something that a lot of us don't eat today. I mean, it's still an unusual. You don't serve cabbage at a sit-down gourmet dinner. Yeah, and whereas I view it as like a really good cabbage. I, I, this was a joke I used to with Jennifer that we would talk about. Uh, I would like to eat the leaves just kind of snacking on them. And I used to have potato chips in my house all the time or pretzels, those, uh, the pretzel bits with the flavor on them. Really? Yeah, and so... 
fruits and nuts originally replaced them. But then as, as time went on and I got more sensitive to the sweetness in vegetables, which I didn't know before, or I, I didn't remember. So cabbage is really sweet. It's sweet and it's got a pepperiness to it, a, a spicy, you know, it's different for each one. So I, we loved it growing up out on the farm raw. And would you picked from your ground? You didn't buy it. Yeah. We'd supplement, but we couldn't grow enough for the winter, but yeah. So I would nibble on it and I would, we created a, a little inside joke of I'm going to go buy a bag of chips meant I'm going to go buy a head of cabbage because I would eat it that way. And my doorman, I guess would get used to see me walk out, like walk out of the building sometimes in my left hand would be a bunch of cabbage leaves. And I'm just nibbling on them and it, they taste good. It's crispy. Yeah. And I mean, sometimes it gets stuck in your teeth, but they in a slightly different way than potato chips. And it is good. I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Am I being annoying? When you do that? Well, or? with the different eating habits and. Well, one of the things that I have noticed is that the smells of food cooking. And with the reading that I've done as immigrants have come to this country, of course, people coming over bring their food. Now, in South Dakota, in the Midwest, mainly Scandinavians, when the Italians came in with garlic, it was really tough on the Scandinavians to smell that. And I remember reading that in New York City, when the German immigrants came in, and they would have the big beer halls, and they'd get together on Sunday. I read this book on Orchard Street, you know, this historical thing. People couldn't stand the smell of Cabbage. And now I can, I'm like, let's open the windows. Of the cabbage? Yes. Because, I mean, it's a smell that I haven't hit in the house for a long time, and I haven't smelled it for a long time. So is that when I cook it in the pressure cooker or when I chop it raw and eat it in the salads? The pressure cooker and when it cooks. I didn't even notice. Of course not, because it's part of, but um, I can assure you that people in the building where you live have noticed it. Because it's unusual for people now. The only time that most people here have boiled cabbage is St. Patrick's Day. Because mm. to me, when I started buying cumin a little while ago, that one was like, this smells like India. Mm. And that when the Indians started buying motels throughout the Midwest, this was about 15 years ago, the whole chains would convert over. I'd walk into a motel and I'd smell this cumin and curry powder and think, I'd ask him, can I join you for uh -huh. dinner? And people would say, oh, that curry smell. Just can't stay in a motel with that. Yeah, it really permeates. I mean, I had to get find the right container to put the cumin in so that it wasn't, I didn't just have a cumin apartment all the time. <laughs> yep. Well, chocolate's a good smell. I like smelling chocolate. Yeah, I'm low on cocoa powder. Mm. Uh, yeah, so I'm trying to avoid all the package stuff. And for people who don't know, which is going to be everyone listening, the, I came up and I didn't like the shop right. It was my first time shopping at a supermarket for a long time. And there was almost everything was packaged. Everything was shipped from across the country or around the world. And so when we got home, I was like, I don't want to eat this stuff. And so I looked at the farmer's markets. They didn't open until June. And you guys were like, of course not. There's nothing to eat. There's nothing growing in the Northeast, in the, in the Catskills in March. Well, there is, but not here. And so I started looking for farmer's markets and I started emailing people. And then we found out this, then I found out about this place nearby where we walked yeah. and connect with Mark and there's. Yeah. Food hub. You should interview him. So how does that look from your perspective? Because I was really glad about, at first I was disappointed in 
ugh, what am I going to do? Not disappointed, but frustrated and trying to figure out what am I going to do to eat? And then I was kind of excited about, oh, I'm going to connect, I'm going to meet people around here. How does it look from your perspective? Was I being annoying or was it kind of neat? Oh, there's this food hub is, is this place where you can go online and get stuff from local places. And they, I guess a couple of people coordinate to make it easy to get stuff. Well, I'm, first of all, I want to go into that history. I'm, I want to do some research because the website is so sophisticated that it seems to me they must be part of a larger network. What's interesting is Mark has been working on this. Last summer, the best week they ever had was $8,000 in produce in one week. Last week, what was it up to? Well, to this week, it's over 30000 because oh, of us. <laughs> oh, absolutely, because of us. We put in our first order. The thing is that even the produce that's coming in right there, there's two th- issues I want to talk about. One is, yes, there are the place where you've been getting your root vegetables and things in your CSA in the city, they have to have very sophisticated cooling systems and places to store this, and they work hard all summer. And and a lot of that work is supplied by migrant workers. And that's a huge problem right now because we may or may not get enough workers coming in for several reasons. For me, there is another food service type of thing where they will tell you, you just go online and you decide what you want to pick and choose. And I did not find that to be as advantageous to me as the type of process that our food co-op had. You placed your order by what you wanted, and you paid for it, and then you ate what you got. I didn't have to think, is this going to cost more here than in the supermarket? Is it, you know, back and forth? I just knew in in Germantown, I placed my order, I got it, I paid for it, and I made do with whatever I got. That meant there were a whole bunch of families that would get together. And they would all put their orders in and one person, I guess it would rotate around. Someone would drive down to South Philly to the to the wholesale food market and get for everyone. So it was always going to be cheaper. Is that the process? It was definitely cheaper. And theoretically, our people that went down to buy, as your father did, because he didn't mind getting up at 3, 30, 4 o'clock in the morning. You had to get down there. They developed relationships with the producers so that they got good produce. Mm-hmm. And that was good. Okay, so that's the process you were talking about growing up. Yeah. And I like that rather than if I see this will go back to my craziness. If I look at that on the on the line. The current food hub thing. Yeah. And I see the price. My mind is automatically saying, I'll bet I can get it cheaper over here. Mm-hmm. And that brings me back to the other thing about the food supply that ties in with your aversion to flying. It pains me that so much is available uh, based on it's being flown up from Mexico, but more important, or from Chile, or heaven knows where this produce is coming from. I feel that that's really bad for the airplanes that are bringing in this food. And it's so cheap, even with paying for the transportation costs. Does transportation, if it's flown in versus shipped in by boat or trucked across the country by truck, is it only the planes at the issue or that it's coming distant? Distance. And it's easy to become accustomed to getting things like, you know, in out there we have tomatoes 
that are, who knows where they came from. They have no taste. They look fine, but they have no taste. I'd rather buy a can of tomatoes that was canned at the source because I remember canning vegetables when I was growing up. You picked them, you canned them, and you had them for the winter. And that's what you ate all winter. You didn't expect, I know the bananas is a situation where, of course, they only come from one place. They must be flown in. They're not coming by boat. I think they're coming by boat. You think so? I think so. Because mm. I think that they put them in some kind of atmosphere that keeps them from ripening. That's probably right. So our food supply is a really big, serious problem for the environment. And that brings us back to too many people. <laughs> well, how do you feel about that? I don't think I've talked to you that much about population. Oh, you listen to the episodes. I don't know how many episodes you listen to or which ones. I haven't really talked to you about this, but I will say to you that when I was pregnant with your sister, the third child, I got a lot of flack from people because in the early 70s was this ZPG, mm-hmm. zero population growth. And, and three was probably pushing it. And as you and I know, the research shows that in any part of the world, when a woman has access to birth control, almost always then the birth rate goes down. It's troubling to me right now to see how many families in this country are having not three, four, five, five, six kids. And I'm not talking about the religious communities. And there's religious communities that believe that, but people who say it's a lot of fun having a baby and I like having a kid and I can afford it. So why don't I have four or five kids? It's not helping our earth. Something else I observe gets you really riled up is the motorcycles and the, um, (laughs) so it's generally quiet here. We hear the dogs barking maybe once in a while in the background, there might've been cars going by. There's one road out here, but there's also from 4.30 to 5.30 every afternoon. Oh, it's every afternoon at the yeah, same time? Yeah, it's every afternoon. These uh, young men on ATVs and motorcycles uh, have this wide open space. And first they go into the vacant land across, which is a jungle right now because it's been overgrown. It hasn't been farmed in 50 years. And they tear up the land right there. They make lots and lots of noise. And then they go down the road to 0.7 miles, because uh, that's what the odometer says. And they have found a place where they can have a lot of fun tearing around, tearing up the mud around the Never Sink River. And the Never Sink River, uh, I should probably get a picture of it to put on this, but it's, it's stunningly beautiful. I mean, except that there's all this plastic pollution there, too. I mean, there's a lot of beer cans and and, uh, coffee cups and just plastic bags. And they can't have been there. They weren't there 10 years ago when you you came here. Was there that much litter by the side of the road? I don't think so. But remember, we were were going into a recession then too. The thing is, I want to also say this, that the river goes into. And up here, we have the five reservoirs that collect water for New York City. So those are very carefully policed. There's no recreational uh, boats out there. Maybe along the edge, there's a couple of rowboats, but no motorboats, uh, no water skiing, nothing like that. 
And the watershed around there is very carefully monitored because New York City needs its water. And the best water comes from up here, the five reservoirs. And that's what they're also messing with that. So you talk to them and you're developing relationships with them. Like what's motivating you? Because most people, I think most people would be like, ah, that's horrible, but whatever, that's life. But you're acting. I am. Why? What, what, what's your hope? What's your goal? Or... Well, you know, decades ago, back on Rockland Street, I used to talk to the neighbors trying to make it safer for us to live there and for you kids to live there. I remember on Walnut Lane, there was an apartment. Between our house, there was a single-family home and then a high-rise apartment building. And there were some people playing really loud music that was not my style. And so I got into the building and I went up and talked to them. And I said, you know, we could have this battle. I could play my classical music. (laughs) They said no. And we didn't have that problem anymore. As long as we come and talk, we can usually resolve things. So this young man, I think, is lonely. That's what I think. I He always stops. He hasn't modified his behavior in the six times we've had conversations. But his cousin from two years ago has talked about me to him. They're two, from what I can see, nice young men who I don't think, I wonder if they finished high school. Um, They have very low-paying jobs. And the most exciting thing in their life right now is to get on that motorcycle as loud as it can be and tear down the road. But he's willing to talk to me. And you saw him. I mean, I don't know. Yeah, that time that when I saw you speak to him, that would have been the fourth time, because I think... Oh, at least. Oh, at least. Oh, yeah. This has been ongoing, Josh. Oh, so when he said, is there a problem? Mm-hmm. He was continuing a conversation from before. Okay. Oh, yeah. And you know that over time, I almost always have developed friendships or relationships with people. I talk to them and ask, I try to get to know them because I figure they're not doing this just to spite me. Now, two of those kids I think were, but not him. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small, it doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. So I'm going to change topics. So you said at Rockland Street. So Rockland Street was on the top of the the scale of danger in streets to live in Philadelphia, 10 being totally safe, zero being very dangerous. Where was Rockland Street? Six or seven. So it's safer than average? Yes, because we knew each other. So to live there was safe. Yeah. If If you didn't live there and you walked through. Yes, we were, I never felt afraid when I came home at night from community organizing and I had to park my car and walk into the house. I was never afraid. Okay. So when you said you talked to them to make things safe, less dangerous, I think you said. It was a neighborhood group. These, 
one of the most impressive things I've ever seen, a bunch of college kids from Antioch College were sent to the city and said, do something. And they looked around and saw these abandoned buildings. So they started a nonprofit. And in those days, the housing market was so bad and there'd been so much redlining and blockbusting. It was the early 70s when all this happened. Our street was 100% white and it became 95% black in less than two years. What years are those? Well, we when did we get there? We got there in 76. So I would say 74. So we moved into an all-white neighborhood? It's all black neighborhood. Okay, so when did it, when was it all white? In the early up until the early 70s. So we moved into a just white flooded neighborhood? Yeah. But it wasn't because by the time we came in, the college kids were there. And there were a couple of families that we all came in. You know, what did we do? That nonprofit organization helped put 150 families into 150 boarded up homes with no special government funding. What had happened was after the Civil Rights Act was passed and it outlawed redlining when they wouldn't give loans in black neighborhoods, and that was forbidden, and it opened up for white people to leave. Previously, the Protestants had left because all the suburbs that were built up in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, they had restrictive covenants. No persons other than the Caucasian race of the Protestant faith may own and occupy these homes. So that meant that the Jews were stuck in the cities, the Catholics were stuck in the cities. If you went to different parts of Philadelphia, Chicago, New York, you would have the Irish Catholic neighborhood, the Jewish neighborhood. You would have all these neighborhoods like this. But when the law changed, then everybody said, hey, we've been living in cramped up housing. We want to go to the suburbs where we can have a yard and grass and all that sort of thing. And so everybody moved out. At the same time, in Philadelphia, we had a very corrupt allegiance between appraisers, lenders, and real estate agents that were blockbusting, redlining, not giving loans for places like that. And so the only people that ultimately got to come in were Blacks because we had a corruption that they could overpay for their homes and get in. But when the oil crisis hit in 74, the last hired were the first fired. So all the blacks that had had gotten jobs were fired, laid off. They couldn't make their housing payments. So at one point, I think HUD owned like 80,000 homes in Philadelphia. The only way they could get rid of them was to do in bulk. You had to buy a minimum of 10 houses at a time. So investors would come in and buy 10 houses, maybe slap some paint on it and start renting to people. But it devastated neighborhoods, whole neighborhoods. Now, what these college kids did is they figured out they will identify buyers for these houses and they would go to HUD and buy 10 houses at nine o'clock in the morning And then for the rest of the day, the corporation that they had would sell the house to people like me. And I paid double what the corporation paid. 
corporation for that house paid $1,000. I paid $2,000. Wait, you got a house for $2,000? That house on Rockland Street was $2,000. At the time I bought it, I was making $5,900 a year. So to buy a $2,000 house was still a stretch. And I had to bring it up to code in a year because most of those houses, the looters had gone in. And if if your listeners ever want to hear how this was done, go to The Sopranos. There were a couple of episodes on The Sopranos where they would go in and strip the copper out of the house, strip anything that architectural delights, everything. They just And when you were done, you had a house that was unlivable. So no. my house did not have copper pipes. It did not have a toilet. It did have a furnace. It had no kitchen cabinets. Everything had been taken out. How did that all get put in? I don't remember working on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that was the summer. That was quite a summer. And then I... Being entrepreneurial, I located, for example, a manufacturer of kitchen cabinets who said he would give it to me at cost if I could do 10 kitchens. So you found nine other people to... All Rockland Street has the same kind of kitchen cabinets. And they were on their way. And I found out that Bill was a person who had a paid vacation. Now, remember, I didn't grow up with paid vacations. And he was at loose ends. And he said he just thought he'd work his way through. He wasn't going to take time off. And I said, Bill, you've heard the story, haven't you? Oh, I said, Bill, you put my kitchen cabinets in that week you're off and I'll make it your worthwhile. (laughs) And he did. And I did. And 40 some years later, we are still married. (laughs) Yeah. Because you got to do what you had to do. The other thing that was going on at that time is lead-based paint. And they started to discover that lead-based paint was really bad for kids. So they gave contracts, HUD did, contracts to people, to guys, to come in and remove lead-based paint. So they just went into every single house and burned it up five feet off the ground. Do you remember that at all? Well, my house had varnish on the chestnut woodwork. It should never have been torched. There's no lead in varnish. But it was a house where it could look, they could look as though they'd done something. So what I did, my house, I cleaned it up. But I had to trade labor. Now, remember, I'm not real skilled at things. So I traded. I would go to somebody else's house and finish burning off their lead-based paint in exchange for their coming in and redoing my electricity, coming in and doing my plumbing. Now, now I remember that. I think, thank goodness that we had joint custody. And I only did this when you kids weren't there because I was coming back covered with lead. So joint custody. So my two sisters and I were going back and forth between dad's house and mom's house. And uh, And we even got the school bus. To go back and forth. (laughs) Back and forth. I was a force to be reckoned with. So I want to, you watched my first TEDx talk, right? The, the, yeah. So you know the four-step process. Are, are you game for it? We're, yeah, because yeah. we can always excise it. <laughs> so you act on the environment and some stuff you talked about, but when you think about the environment, what do you think about when you act on it? What motivates you among many things? I mean, I'm sure there's more than one thing. I miss the birds. 
even the 10 years that we've been here, we have about half the birds that we had initially, and that saddens me. I miss the flavor of wheat. I remember bread tasting really good. I am totally dismayed with the monoculture that we don't have varieties of of foodstuffs that we once had. And I guess in a way I'm shielded a little bit because Susie is very conscientious as you to keep things that way, but it's very discouraging. When you think about the birds from before, you talk about how it is now, it's discouraging. Did you have a sense of birds or wheat before? Did you relish in it or did you only realize it when it was gone? Or No, growing up, especially on the farm, when we lived on the farm, is we watched the geese fly away and we watched them come back. Even in Nebraska, when we lived there, we lived there from, what, 95 to 2005. I saw the places where the geese used to settle. You know, I had a book at that time, Environmental Issues, well, still around, and I talk about the value of wetlands uh, and how it stops flooding and, and it breeds, has spaces for animals. We loved looking at the red-winged blackbirds in the spring. We loved seeing some swans land on the reservoir. Yeah, we grew up with that, listening very carefully, catching grasshoppers, uh, being plagued by grasshoppers. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. I miss that. And what about the taste of the bread? Well, when we grew up, you had different brands of flour because they had different tastes. So depending on whether you wanted to make a cake, you would have one kind of flour. And if you wanted to make bread, which my mother did, my mother started with a dishpan, 24 cups of flour. She baked bread for a family of six once a week, and her bread was really good. And when we had bake sales and she would bring in her bread, people would want Marge Scottwold's bread. We don't have that variety anymore. And no matter what I do with my sourdough and the bread, it just doesn't have that robust flavor that I used to get in Europe. This last trip, you know, six months ago, uh, they've all stopped baking. They've All their little bakeries are closing down. They're just having the same monoculture breads that we have. And they don't have the flavors. But if you could find a place and you tasted that, it was really good. Based on what you're talking about, this experience of catching the grasshoppers, of seeing the birds, tasting, I bet the smell of the bread cooking. Butterflies. All the time, butterflies. So based on these things that that you missed, that you had before, I invite you at your option to think of something that you could do to act on that. I don't know what it might be. Usually people have to go back and forth a bit. And it it can be big or small. It's just something that you do yourself, not telling other people what to do and not something you're already doing. Oftentimes people find something that they've been thinking about doing but haven't gotten around to. Is there something you could do to act on any of those feelings, those memories? I think about my friend Pecky, who tagged all those monarchs in Cape May Mm -hmm. and saw the decline. Um, She was very, very active in this. I we try to encourage milkweed so that we have our butterflies. And by the way, it's not to save the world. This is not it's not to make a big effect. It may make a big effect. Great if it does. 
but it's really just to do something to address what you've talked about. I'm not going to, I, for food doesn't come to mind, but three years ago, I started to get active with Fab Scrap, which is a nonprofit in New York City that sorts fabric so it can be recycled. Unless it is sorted, it only can go to a landfill. So if we can find cotton, that can be recycled and reused. If we can find 100% wool, it can be recycled and reused. If it has any stretch in it at all, it is absolutely useless. And that has to be totally segregated. If we have unknown mixes, that can be made into insulation. And I've decided that that is becoming my passion. And I go there and I stand there and the piles and piles of bags of sample fabrics. And it's all sample fabrics. Where is this? Is this here or in the city? It's in the city. It started out in Jamaica, Queens, and now it's in the Brooklyn Army Terminal. We apparently, no one had ever looked at recycling fabrics. Just putting them out on the curb does not recycle. They just go into the landfill. And so as I've been following up on this, I've been learning more and more and going back to sewing my garments. Is this something you can act on now? I've been acting on it. Oh, because I thought going to the city, I mean, now given the virus. I can't do that. No, I can. What I can do is go into my studio, not just a sewing room, it's a studio, in the studio and start using up the fabrics that I have. What was that? How is that different than... Were you going to do that anyway, or do you mean sort them for reuse and recycling? Or Well, my fabrics are not, probably wouldn't end up in a landfill. The passion that I have now is sorting at Fab Scrap and talking to people about thinking about their fabrics and where they're from and do they really want this. So this doesn't connect with the, the food, it doesn't connect with the birds, but it sounds like it connects with something. What motivates you in this area? Is it something like the birds or the butterflies, but in fabric? Mm, I don't think so. Is it something that... I like, I miss the birds that I grew up with, mm -hmm. but I haven't found a passion to go out and do anything about them. So you're talking about what you would do with the fab scrap. Where does that come from? Finding one thing that I can have a passion about that is relating to the environment. I have never become passionate about not flying. I have never become passionate about not eating meat. I have not become passionate. I, I try to minimize my products, uh, my plastic and my trash and things like that. And then I thought one day I can be passionate about recycling fabrics. Okay. Now we got to, someone's got to get out here. I'm not passionate about not flying. I, I don't know how to get this across any more clearly. The passion is for community and connection and joy. And the passion is for discovering things around me and connecting with things around me. I'm not not flying. I am staying home. I am connecting with people around me. And as long as people see, there's a name for it. I think the psychologists call it the fundamental attribution error, which is to look at what someone, as my understanding is, is to look at what someone does and think they're trying to do that. I'm not trying to not fly. The first year was the challenge to challenge myself to see if I could do it. What I discovered was passions that I am doing. I'm not not flying. I am connecting with my community. I am learning about local foods. I am creating adventure myself. 
I'm not not flying. So when you say I don't have a passion for not flying, no one has a passion for not flying. It's like, it's like saying I have a hobby of not collecting stamps. I don't collect stamps just because I don't know, but I have other things that I do. But what I'm doing is when you collect scraps of fabric, I presume that there's something, you, you, there's many different things you could do. There's probably something in you that that resonates with. Well, the ones I can recycle by sewing. And like, for instance, when I started making these masks, I had plenty of fabric to choose from and to make the masks. What I try to get at is what people do, maybe big, maybe small. That's not my point. It's for it to be meaningful. So if someone's doing something and they're doing it because they read in a magazine, you should avoid straws. If nothing in their life really connects with that, then they're just doing what someone told them to. They're complying. That's fine. That's nice. But it's not meaningful. What I try to do is I try to ask people what they care about and to act on what they care about. So you talked about birds. You talked about butterflies. You talked about grasshoppers. You talked about the taste of bread. Earlier in the conversation, you talked about sewing, but I'm not hearing where the sewing comes from. You're telling me you have a passion for scraps, but if someone said to me, Josh, don't fly, I wouldn't keep that up. The reason I keep it up is that the things in my life that I discovered when I challenged myself that I liked, I found like, why did I fly? I liked adventure. I liked cuisine. I liked making money. And then when I challenged myself to not fly, I found I could create more adventure, more cuisine, more cultural experiences, and more control over my what I did for work. That's what I'm doing for positive things, not avoiding things. So when you observe that I'm not doing something, you're missing my passion. You think I have a passion for something I could care less about. I have no passion for uh, avoiding plastic. I have a passion for stewarding the land, air, and water that we share because I, I have things that I don't get to enjoy because they're covered with plastic. I don't care how much people say, oh, it's going to go in a landfill. It's going into the world. And it doesn't have to. And I think of how I would feel if I had more beauty in the world. And so I believe that I'm creating, if I'm not creating more beauty, I'm at least not taking away beauty from someone else. When I turn off the lights when no one's in the room, I'm not thinking about a dark room. I'm thinking about people who have to breathe in the exhaust from the coal factory or from from the, the land that had to be cleared out to get the oil out of the ground and the people who are displaced. I don't want to cause that. I think to some extent it's inevitable in life, but I, at least I can minimize it. I'm thinking about people. I'm thinking about stewardship. I'm thinking about my experiences that really, that I don't like. That We were talking about earlier today in the city. When I wake up in the morning, I cough the phlegm and here I'm not coughing up the phlegm. I don't want to do that to other people. When I turn off the light, if I see a light on in a room and no one's in the room, I'm thinking someone's coughing up phlegm somewhere for that. I don't like it. I don't think anyone likes it. Well, well now, I now do. We just aired some laundry. <laughs> I really like sewing. Mm. I love the feeling when it's the garment starts to take shape in my hands or the quilt design starts to unfold. And each of my daughters have tried to find that feeling. They have come back to me later, and they've taken sewing classes. They've made, well, Susie in particular, she made a lot of garments for the girls. The nicest dress she owns is one she made. And 
Sarah too. Well, I don't know what Sarah made, but they came back to me at one by one and said, I honestly do not understand what joy you get out of sewing at all. But you were here when I finished up that quilt. I was also here when you... <laughs> made <laughs> an <it>. error. Yeah. <laughs> I don't like making errors when I'm sewing. So is sewing a passion that's environmental? If it's not, I don't want to stop you from doing something you're passionate about, but I want to find a passion environmental and see if, it, if we can get something... See if, I, if I have something that you can pull out of me. Well, I definitely do it because I don't want to, I am against factory garments, but I do it because it's a passion of mine. I'm going to push a bit here and see if we can go back to the bread or the birds or the, or the butterflies or the crickets. And a lot of people think, how can I fix the world about, you know, so I can bring all the birds back to life. But that's not what I'm asking. It's just anything at all. Well, I can't bring anything back. That, yeah, but you could... The I mean, world I knew is gone, and it's gone for good. The is, extinction. Is there anything that it motivates you to do? My motivation is to live to be a good person, not to harm others, to make my way through. This is the part that I just don't understand when we are talking what you're headed for. What I hear you talking about always seems like limitations and and rigidity. So there's never a, I feel bad that you don't eat some of the foods that I cook that I know that you used to like. So I feel bad about that, like lefse, the Norwegian dish, lefse. There were things meals were much more joyful when we all shared common um, liking of getting together and, and sharing those things. A, a good glass of wine, lefse, having a meal without having to think about do, you know, what is separate here and who's going to eat that. It's, I find this food whole situation which is also complicated in our family by extreme allergies, extremely disruptive. And it doesn't lead to commonality. It leads to separateness. So, yeah, I really feel that I need to limit things that I've enjoyed because they are actually very bad for the environment. I grew up where it was easily 90 degrees every single day. In fact, where I worked, the store, uh, if it got 90 degrees outside, we got to close the store and go home because it was that unsafe. To me, air conditioning was wonderful. To my mom and my grandmother, not having to use an icebox, refrigerators were great. And... I really appreciate all of that today. And I understand that we've gone overboard with air conditioning. It's really bad for the environment. And one should learn how to get along with these temperatures. But Josh, it was really hot in South Dakota. Unless you had really, really good screens, when you opened up the windows, you were covered with mosquito bites. 
I don't want to revisit that at all, ever. I am willing to use fans and cut out a lot of air conditioning. But to me, it means giving up a lot. That made my life a lot better. I didn't have much, but what I had was good. And it seems to me like you're asking me, not you personally, but people are saying, stop doing these things that brought you joy. I'm not excessive. I turn on, we don't have lots of air conditioning. We, there are a lot of things I could be more excessive about. But yeah, to my generation, to me, it seems as if we need to give up a lot. So you, your observation of my behavior is that it's rigid, limiting, excessive. <laughs> well, did I use all those words? I think so. My dear listeners, did I use all of those words? So, I mean, we can rewind and check. I mean, whether you use those words or not, is that what you observe of my behavior? Do you, do you perceive me as, as living a more rigid, uh, more limiting lifestyle? Yeah. And so when I say to you, that it's about doing, joy and community and connection. Are you thinking he's lying to himself? What a crock. Uh-huh. <laughs> I mean, you asked. So what, what do you think of me as a result of that? What do I think of you? Yeah. Do you think that I'm lying to myself or you or both? That I'm, that I'm fooling myself? No, I wouldn't use those words. I wouldn't say you were lying and I don't think you're fooling. I would not use those terms. I see you as going in your own direction. And I respect you for following your beliefs and acting on them. It's not something I want to do as completely as you are doing. So if I'm not lying or fooling myself, is it just mystifying to you? It is. Unless I say it's tilting at windmills that don't exist. Do you think I'm off the, not off the rails, but like loopy? I mean. Pretty extreme. Okay, extreme. But I'm also an extreme not murderer. But you don't call, I mean, I've never murdered anyone. It's zero, absolute zero. I'm not trying to balance, sure? I'm not trying to balance a little bit of murder with, you know, I, I'm absolute zero on this one. Like, <laughs> I'm not going to murder anyone. I'm never going to murder anyone. Thank goodness. You wouldn't describe that as extreme, though. I mean, there are people who do murder people. So for this to be extreme, I, I feel like out of balance or something like that. Oh, I do feel you're out of balance. Tell me more. Quixotic is the word. And tilting at windmills. I hear you say that you're doing it to give yourself pleasure. I hear you say that. But hearing it so much sometimes leads me to believe that you're holding yourself up as a paragon of virtue. And it's not a virtue that I want to emulate. Yeah, it's not. There's a few things you said. It's not about pleasure. And I wouldn't call pleasure virtue anyway. So when I say you just see me as not flying and depriving myself in order to make a point, in order to shame people into something, into giving stuff up as well, into living worse lives? Does it sound like I'm trying to make people live worse lives for the greater good, something like that? I think it's useful to have people like you as examples, you and Greta Thornburg, to make these statements. It's a problem for me when it becomes, it sounds as though it's proselytizing. And you have been careful not to with me. And it may be something I'm reading into this. So no matter how many times I, it comes out of me that I'm enjoying my life more now, you're, you're saying he thinks that, but really he's not. No, I know you're enjoying life. 
the problem comes when it feels as though I should be doing similar things, like not flying. Do you get that what I'm saying now when I'm inviting you to act on your things? I'm not asking you to do anything you don't want to do. On the contrary, to do something you probably would like to do. There's bird feeders behind the house. Presumably that's feeding birds. I presume it's healthy, healthy for the birds, but you also get to see the birds more. Right. So that's not an impediment to your life. That's not imposing. That's not a restriction. I mean, it takes time to put the stuff out. It costs money to, to get the food. Bill does it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. <laughs> and that's the sort of thing like that presumably brings you joy. I mean, I guess you see the birds disappearing over the course of a decade or so, but that's something where you act, you as a unit have acted on, as a family unit have acted on something and presumably has improved your life. And actually I've seen that like in the time that I've been here in this past month, more stuff has gone out there to the bird feeder went out and the, the St. Francis of Assisi statue has gone out. And I presume that these are things that you and Bill collectively are doing that are making your life better. That's the sort of thing that I'm, I mean, it could be that you want to change the world, but it could be just that you want to do something to bring back something that was gone or to act, you know, act on something that was there. Like that's the sort of scale that most people do stuff on. We, I try to live my life with as little impact, but the impact that I have is definitely more than the impact that you have. But the impact that I have is less than what I used to have. And so I feel that I am making progress in that direction, but I do not want to go back to where I was growing up. No one suggested anything remotely like that. I didn't say anything about deprivation. I didn't say anything about giving anything up. But now my question to you is, what is it? I'm saying this is how I feel. And I keep hearing more questions from you, which isn't getting me to, I'm not, I not living up to whatever you want to hear from me. I like my life right now. I like it. Mm-hmm. I am grateful that at this precise moment in time, we can be surrounded. I love my house. It's bigger than what we need, and it'll be time to get rid of it. But it's an old house that Bill saved, and it didn't fall apart. Built in 1880, I love to be here. It gives me great delight to be here. And it gives me great delight to share it with people. You know, this young man out here, I feel, I could be totally wrong, but I think he's looking for a connection. And I would like to include him in the connections that we have in this house of sharing, breaking bread together. Now, wouldn't he see you as restricting him? as being rigid with him because he wants to go out and have fun tearing up the road. I mean, he's he's not tearing up the road. He's having fun. He's having fun. Are you restricting him? I wonder if I am or if he's reaching, if he stops and talks to me because he knows that there's something different than just making noise on the road. Could he find something more interesting to do? Do you hope that he does find something more interesting to do? Yeah, but I think I'm going to have to be part of that. I would like to help you find something, and I'd like to be a part of that. Uh, to me, I'm doing the exact same thing with you that you are with him. And you don't want to tell him what to do. Of course I, I, I do. Well, okay. <laughs> I bet you'd like it to come from inside him more than you telling him what to do. Mm, I wouldn't say that. Are you telling him what to do? Do you have a plan? Do you, do you have any expectation of him changing his behavior? Mm-hmm. I do have an expectation. 
And what's that expectation? Well, we'll play that out. You've, you're going to be here for a while, and it looks as though we're going to be locked down for a while. Mm-hmm. And so for a while, we're going to, he and I are going to have to deal with each other. I think it'll make a difference to get to know each other. I'm not sure that we will ever agree on the same things. He may always want to have his motorcycle and make loud noises. And I will continue to be annoyed by them. And you're acting in expectation or hope of some change. It may not happen, but it might. I'm hoping that he and I can meet each other without being adversaries. And to what end? Isn't that enough? Why does everything have to have a bigger meaning? Why can't it just be friendship or just I'm, a I'm, nice I'm connection? Asking, okay, I'm, I'm asking you. You're doing something that most people wouldn't do. I mean, when that kid came up to me first, he seemed threatening to me, and you just chatted with him. Uh, yeah, right. That's true. Are you doing what most people would do it? Am I right? Yeah, and most people would not do it. And are you taking some kind of risk or kind of something's getting you? Something, you I did not feel I was taking a risk yesterday. I, what I mean is, are you acting because you're a paragon of virtue? Are you acting because you want to deprive him of something? No. Neither am I. And you, and you hope that, I think that you hope that he's going to change in some way. Well, I want to show him a different way of having fun. You want to bring fun to his life? Well, whatever he calls this, riding up and down the street making noise. Okay. I'm also hoping to bring something that you like to your life. In my case, it's, it's passion, it's joy. It's um, community and connection. And I believe that as long as you keep seeing how I'm acting as deprivation and sacrifice, you're always going to see like this guy is full of, he he wants deprivation and sacrifice for me. It's like almost polar opposite of what I want. So as long as you think that I'm seeking from you deprivation, sacrifice, paragon of virtue, all the stuff that's like the opposite of me, I don't know what you think, but I'm not asking for that. And nor are you asking for him to give up fun. There's something that he doesn't see in the world that I think you want to bring to him. Maybe I'm wrong. I'm not trying to tell you that that's what, that's, that what you're doing. That's just my perception. And so I believe that what you're doing with him is very similar to what I'm doing with you. You're not giving up. Do you want me to give up? Because you're not asking him to have a less fun life. I don't think you are. And I'm not asking you to deprive yourself of anything either. Even though that's what you hear, as far as I can tell. Well... Years ago, I taught a seminar. I facilitated a program. And the videotapes that we used, the very last videotape was this man, Lou Tice, who said, you've just completed three days of, uh, for many people, very uh, thought-provoking, in some situations, life-changing experiences that they never thought they were going to have in a real estate class. And he, his program wasn't meant for real estate agents. We, we did that. But at the very end, he said, you've learned a lot in this and you're feeling very positive and you would like to share what you've learned with your family, your friends, et cetera. He said, I would urge you to think, to think about using a little bit of caution. He said, if you go out in the bright sunlight and you're there, and the sun is shining down on you, you know, you can get sunburned, and you can get sick, and it would be a problem. He said, be like that. Go out and waft gently. Let your actions speak without having to articulate it so much. He said, just let it gently waft out. And that's what I 
feel is useful is when I'm around somebody that I observe them and I see the joy that's in their life and the pleasure, and then I want to move towards it. Sometimes, I'm not saying all the time, but there are times when there's a lot of, it feels to me, not that you're wafting gently and letting it float out, but it seems like there's a push. And that could be my issue. What I try to do with the podcast with people is to give them an experience that in most cases, it's a pleasant surprise to them that it's contrary to their expectations, that no amount of words or observing me or anyone else has ever achieved, that I've not, I've not seen it. You have to experience it to experience it. And for years, I know of no effective way to communicate this through words, but when people experience it, they consistently come back with, oh, I'm glad I did this. I didn't realize that by not flying, I spent more time with my family. And now I think of this as not spending more time with my family or something like that. That's uh, Nir Eyal was a recent guest. And there's, there's complicated things here that I hope is entertaining to the listeners. <laughs> Do you like, feel pushed by me? I mean, that let's turn this around. This yeah. Or, oh man, it's really uncomfortable with the food. Yeah. I mean, you guys won't touch my stuff. And, and you think that I'm the one who's being picky, that I'm the one who's imposing on you. And I'm constantly turning off lights and I'm like, oh my God, like in order to stop the pollution, I have to risk you guys being like, Josh, look, this is the way we do it here. And I know that it's blah, 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 but really this is, and I'm like, what I finally realized is, uh, have you seen the movie Grand Torino with uh, Clint Eastwood? No, but I'd like to. Okay. So he plays this uh, veteran and on the face of it, he speaks in a very racist language. And if you look at his actual behavior, he's got a heart of gold. So the movie, I, I highly recommend it. Clint Eastwood is great. It's, and uh, I like him. And I thought, okay, I'm kind of like Clint Eastwood because he goes around and he sees things the way he it should be. Or, you know, he's like, constantly growling. And I, mean, I, I don't think I'm giving anything away here. This is like what you get in the first five seconds of the movie. And then I realized I'm not like Clint Eastwood in that. I'm like Meathead. Which one is Meathead? Meathead is an all in the family. He's the son, Rob Reiner. Oh, right. I know who he is. Yeah. He played, uh, I don't think he was like a full on hippie, but he was like a 60s or 70s character who was, he was living in Archie Bunker's home. And Archie Bunker was of the greatest kind of generation. He was a veteran. He fought for this country and he lived in a world that was, people were fine, right? The, the wife stayed home and she supported the husband. He went out and worked. That was fine. And there were, uh, I guess he grew up probably in a white neighborhood and then there are blacks moving in. He's like, that's, that's new to him. And he, it's not that he's against equality in the sense that we would say today, he just had, a, there was a different system that worked for him. And the meathead comes along, or he would call him meathead. I think his name was Michael. Comes along and this guy, his idea of equality is like women and men equal, blacks and whites equal and all sorts. And like, and there's a clash. And by, by Archie Bunker's standards, he's being asked to change in ways that he never asked for. And he's being considered bigoted for reasons that he's not. And if you get down to the real heart of things, he doesn't have anything against, I don't know, all the different issues that came up of equal rights. Right. And, we can't even like talk that. about them now because it's politically incorrect. And the show won all sorts of awards. Yeah, I just absolutely. Looked this up yeah. For bring merely for mentioning topics that others couldn't even mention. So take all those topics and people grew up in a world in which turning on the air conditioner was, it was good. So someone born in that world to look at today's world and I'm meathead. I'm saying we got to consider these things or I'm sorry, I'm considering these things and I'm behaving this way. And 
you guys are Archie Bunker. But I don't mean bigoted in a, in a sexist, racist, whatever way. Not that I think he was. I just think he was caught. I think the show was showing like it was times had changed and values were shifting, but he was, he was still hard of hard of gold, I think. So I'm living, I'm meathead. I'm like living in a world where I'm by the values of looking forward. I'm taking into account that when the light is on, when no one's in the room or when you, every time someone uses the water, you put it on hot, even for things that don't need hot water. I'm like, well, that took oil to, it took something to heat up the water and I'm thinking of who's on the other end of that. And so I act according to that. So I'm Meathead. And that's, that makes you guys Archie Bunker. <laughs> I mean, maybe you'd be Edith. I'm not sure. But I mean, it's not like you're a stay-at-home mom. More clueless. And so I'm not saying that's, that's, that's what I've realized. Like I'm Meathead. That's a nice analogy. I can live with that. And if you asked him to ask his wife to stay at home while he went off and worked. And she, even if she wanted to make a career for herself, he would not say, no, you stay at home. Even though Archie would say it about Edith, he would say, you're never going to go out and work or something like that. I, I'd have to watch a show. I didn't really watch it that much, but I know the characters. I think you weren't born. It was on when I was around. I don't know. I remember in, at least in reruns. That was a joke. And so I'm not coming in here. Like he was bringing equality. He was bringing in the, the values of that generation. And I'm bringing values of the future. That's the way I feel. And turning off the lights when no one's in the room to me feels like a natural thing to do. And I'm walking on eggshells doing it and avoiding the food that's been shipped all across the country or around the world is, I think you're saying it's dividing people, but I'm not the one buying the foods from all around the world. Did I say it was dividing? I resent it. I don't like using them. Okay. I don't think you have a problem with people who are, who are allergic to peanuts, not eating peanuts. I, I agree. I think you have a problem with me not eating the pears. Uh, that are shipped in from Argentina. No, I don't have a problem with that either. You said earlier, there's something about eating habits that's, that's divisive. Maybe it's the smell of the cabbage. You said there was something that was divisive. You said over the course of, my, of the month of my being here, what I remember was that there's been a shakeout of like who eats what. And mostly we don't eat each other's foods. We don't. Yeah. And I sensed on the whole scale of like, love it versus hate it. This is not... Full on, oh, I love that we're cooking separate and not eating together. Or we'll eat together, but we're not eating each other's food. Well, I think that's really good. That we have accommodated each other. That the smells and the byproducts of what we're eating is that Bill and I do our thing and you do your thing and we come together at the table. What were you saying earlier about something separating about food habits, about eating habits? Mm, I don't know. We, we don't eat each other's foods. When you grew up, people just ate together, and now it's separate. Well, we did eat together because you either ate then or you didn't eat at all. And you ate what was put in front of you, whether you liked it or not, because there wasn't any alternative. You would go very hungry. We didn't have that many choices. But, of course, we loved the fresh peaches coming. Now, they would be shipped from Denver to from Colorado to South Dakota. And we would get a couple of crates and my mother would either freeze them or can them. We would have just little bits and tastes and we loved those. And they came from a long distance away in those days. That was a long distance. I guess for me, I have never really spent a lot of time thinking and looking at labels in the grocery store. But last fall when we were in Europe, 
the labels are huge. They're very prominently displayed. They're not on a little tiny stickum thing that's on the product. And it's very clear that the Europeans would much rather at least have something that is trucked in as opposed to flown in. And I just became more, just those little things, I became much more aware of using gas, petrol, whatever, to bring product in. So I'd like to move away from that. I'd like to eat fresh when it's available. But realizing that that's limiting because we live in the northern climate. We just don't have as many options in the wintertime. We can only eat so much potatoes and cabbage. I'll go back to at this moment in which you're describing missing something or wanting something. I invite you at your option to do something, anything related to that. Because I predict that if you give it a shot, acting on what you care about, something that you come up with, that after you do it, you'll look back and say, it did look limiting before. But now that I've done it, it's actually liberating. I, I, I can't say what the effect will be, but I think it'll be something unexpected and something that you will like. That's why I'm pushing on this or persisting. <laughs> I hope well, politely persisting. Don't forget that I'm much older than almost anybody that you interview. I'm sure you've interviewed the 100-year-old, whatever. What's her name? The girl uh, scout say, Yeah, don't say I mentioned because she doesn't like when people mention her age. So, Well, <laughs> I don't mind my age. I'm 76. But yeah. it's her interest for her. Right. I am recognizing that I am in the downside of my life. That does not greatly distress me because that's the fact of life. I always thought, well, there's always this time to go forward, time to go forward. There's always time to do this. Now I'm looking at every year is less time to do something. And I am really grateful that I don't really have regrets in my life. And I will look to see if I can get another exciting thing. But boy, I had a good time in Europe last fall. I enjoyed walking those stone streets. I enjoyed sitting in an outdoor cafe and having a cup of coffee. I enjoyed that ambiance. It meant so much to me. My read of why you say that, if I heard a son and mother talking like this, I'd be like, this is hilarious. <laughs> the, the way they're talking past each other. But I think that you're implying, Josh, I hear what you're saying, but you're asking me to deprive myself and I'm not going to deprive myself because I got so many years left and you want me to take away and give things up and you want me to be miserable or deprived. Not miserable. Okay. You want me to give the stuff up and my intent is to enliven and enrich and liberate and I'm that not that's, seeing it. That that's absolutely, yeah. And I think that only experience can get it across. I really hope you get some feedback from this. Yeah, I think it'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> I would love to see this and I, hear what other people have to say. Yeah, I imagine it's funny. <laughs> and I imagine they're probably like, wow, they both sound really frustrated. Or, I'm not sure. Oh, I wouldn't put those words into there. I think that there's people who would say, wow, that's what it's like trying to talk to your mother. <laughs> you should try talking to my mother. Yeah, I, I have persisted past this level with other guests. I think I have, because several guests, I really persist a lot. And uh, what enables me to is the results. 
But at, at this point, I will cease the persisting. Let's hope that we get some feedback. Yeah. I would love to have feedback. Yeah, I mean, obviously, we're, we're going to stop recording, but that doesn't mean that we're, we're still living together for an indefinite amount of time because, yes, of, the because of this virus. Yeah. So and that's it. It was nice visiting with you today, Josh. <laughs> it's, well, it's like as soon as we stop recording, we're going to be visiting for another <laughs> six months or something. But um, I like to ask at the end, is there anything you'd like to say directly to the listeners or any last words to, to impart with? I'm really interested in having some feedback. I would love it if people would just write in, or I don't know how you get feedback to these. As Josh has mentioned, I'm speaking to the listeners now, I don't listen very much to podcasts, anybody's. Uh, I'd like to read it, but here's a situation where I've opened myself up to sit and visit with Josh, and it's being tape recorded, so we can always go back to hear what each other said, but I'd really like to have some feedback from people's lives and their, their situations with their families and people who mean a lot to them. People know my email is josh at spodek.net. I'll be happy to forward to my mom. You can, or I don't know how much yeah. people want to put on the email on the internet. My oh, email okay. is on the internet. It's easy to find. It's marie at mariespodak.com. And that's fine to go out? Yep. Well, Marie Spodek, mom, thank you very much. You're welcome, Josh, my son. Well, now you've seen a new part of me. I hope that you'll give her feedback and me if you like. For my part, I enjoyed the conversation. In a whole mother-son relationship, it's not the worst thing, but I do feel misunderstood about my motivations about acting on the environment. To me, I thought I felt joy. It looks like deprivation to her, I guess. And I thought that the parallel between what she's doing with the motorcycle guys and what I'm doing, I thought it'd make more sense. Maybe I'm missing something. I hope it was fun to listen and hear us, I think, not understanding each other. Maybe people can communicate and say, Josh, this is what you're missing. And I'll go, oh, I, when you say it, it makes sense. Or she'll say, or you'll say, Marie, this is what he's saying. And she'll say, oh, now it makes sense. I wonder how many people see me, not my mom, but other people see me as actually depriving myself, as someone really giving up on the best parts of life just because he's trying to make a point or live a certain way as some trying to be a paragon of virtue, not realizing that I'm really just sacrificing. Should I stop saying that I'm experiencing joy and community and connection? Because as far as I can tell, saying so makes people think that I don't know what I'm talking about. No one gets it until they actually experience it. And I don't think saying it actually gets people to experience it. Maybe I should just stop saying it and just try to live it. Usually the experience on the other side of living by a value at least slightly, often greatly, changes guests' perspectives. I persisted as far as I was willing with my mom. Well, obviously the conversation's not going to end there. We'll keep talking, but we're not recording. I hope that I would get that here, but I didn't want to keep persisting any farther. Maybe your feedback will help. I'll probably update this. I'm not sure if we'll record another conversation together, but I'll try to update in the podcast. So stay tuned. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step-by-step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.